how is your mum with four kids meant to keep an eye on all of you? Well, you just pop a leash on. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Geordie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Well, I've been better. I think I've got a summer cold or some oh. such. I don't bloody know, but it's... I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's plain. So apologies if I sound like a bit rubbish today. Um, just not 100%, but I'm going to give it oh. 100%. So You reach deep inside yourself and you just pull it out of the bag, Michelle, every time you're a consummate professional. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> but I mean, maybe we should just take a moment to talk to our talk to our listeners about what we're what we are professionals about because we're we're eavesdroppers you are eavesdropping on mine and michelle's conversation each week we have a conversation on this very platform it's a podcast you listen to it sometimes you can watch it because there is a youtube channel michelle will tell you more about that later and we also have a patreon page which is where you can if you enjoy these conversations you can go on to that you can have access to our merchandise which is no, not up there yet but it's on its way and a few extra droppings we used to do free extra droppings but now you have to pay so to do that you either pay a little bit of money each week or month or whatever or you give us a tip and you get access to things it's great isn't it michelle it is great and you know, it's it's nice to support us, but there is actually another way you can support us because if you have not voted for us yet in the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice, you can do so. And I will be putting a... A link or something. That's what you like I will to be, do, isn't it? I'll put a link. I'll put a link. Oh, I'll link to that. I'll put a link in that. the show notes. I know. I actually don't know that anyone even looks at the bloody show notes, but they're, they're a gem of information. They're a wealth, a resource wealth. But anyway, um, but it is uh, BritishPodcastAwards.com forward slash vote. Then you put in eavesdrop and no G apostrophe and you'll find us. You'll see our little faces and then you just give us a Silly vote. Silly little faces. Yeah. Thank you. We really need your support because with that Listener's Choice Award, it could help us to reach many more eavesdroppers and help us to do this more full time, which means that the quality would be improved and the quantity would be improved. <laughs> and then you'd have a better time listening to us jibber jabbering about things like supernatural, true crime, real life, ghosty wosties, UFOs, poisonings, all sorts. Why did I say poisonings, Michelle? I don't know. How odd. That is odd. I wonder what's on your mind these days. But you know what? Something's I, on my mind. Well, something's on my mind. Um, it is last week's episode. Ah. Now, you talked about Gator Rogalski, who is I did. a former professional skateboarder who was mm. convicted of raping and murdering a woman 30 years ago. Now, yeah. we did talk about how he was sentenced to 31 years to life in jail yeah. back in 1991 because he killed Jessica Bergsten. Well, you had said in, in the episode that, you know, he kept coming up for parole, kept getting mm. it denied. Yeah. Well, in the last two weeks, he's been paroled. He has actually been out. paroled. Well, no. He was granted parole at the beginning of the month by the State Board of Parole Hearings. Then San Diego 
uh, County District Attorney's Office said that Jessica Bergston's family members were devastated and they've got one month to appeal the decision to reverse it and have him not out. So his parole, as much as I understand it, has been approved but there is one month to have the decision reversed. So Right, so he's still sitting pretty in prison and they're just waiting to to dot the I's and cross the T's or whatever and then he's either free or not. Yeah, and I think they've got one more week. How long has he done? I think 31 years. I'll give you an update on that once we figure it out. But how interesting that we did not even sort of realise that he was like back in the headlines. Well, yeah, exactly. The only reason why I chose that story, Michelle, was because I had been listening, as I mentioned last week, to Heidi World, which is a documentary style podcast on the rise and fall of Heidi Fleiss back in the 90s, young Hollywood madam. She was only about 22 or something when she became a top Hollywood madam through various means. That story came up because Gator's girlfriend high profile girlfriend at the time brandy mclean was a heidi girl yeah so that story came up and i looked deeper into it and of course it had links back to canberra because of my days as a canberra skate betty and a lot of my friends who were also skaters at the time i i did reach out i only got a small bit of information back from one of our friends who shall remain nameless when gator rogowski was arrested There was a friend of his who is a pro skateboarder now who found it really, really tough because it was obvious at the time that Gator was mentally ill and it could have been the head injuries because do you remember he fell out of a window or was pushed out of a window while he was on tour in Germany? Mm. And I don't know if you know this, but there's a documentary about Michael Hutchins. He had a head injury when he had an altercation with a Danish cab driver when he was dating Helena Christensen and he ended up in hospital I think he was in a coma briefly his whole personality changed after that he ended up on drugs and of course we know what happened to Michael Hutchins in the end what my source was saying was that he was definitely Gator was definitely a narcissistic and had delusions of grandeur at the time probably because of the amount of money and fame that were heaped upon him at the time And it also, it was just the tip of the iceberg of the pro skate world of the 80s and 90s. There was, it was plagued with mental illnesses, death by misadventure, suicide, long jail stints. All these young men whose lives were marked from a hedonistic lifestyle and all of this money and everything and adulation from a sport that was once underground and outlawed to a now clean, corporate, bland, jock-filled, very sterile sport indeed you wouldn't recognize it as it is today compared to the the 80s and 90s or 70s 80s and 90s skateboarding world it used to be exciting it used to be exciting and then like everything it gets monetized and corporatized corporatized i mean look there's nothing wrong with monetizing a sport because you know people have to live and it's a little bit like podcasting, you know, if you want people to I was just going to gonna say, to it's a bit it. like monetizing a podcast. Exactly. It is. If you want people to be able to do this full time, you know, you have to make some money out of it. Yeah. I managed to find, and it is in the show notes, you talked a little bit last week about a documentary called Stoked, The Rise and Fall of Gator. I've found the link to the whole documentary 
on YouTube. So, and I've yeah. put that in the show notes. And I started watching it and I've got to go back and finish it because it's so interesting. And reading the comments underneath, people having firsthand accounts of yeah. meeting Gator and how they felt about the skateboarding world at that time. It's super interesting. So I'll put that link again in, in this week's show notes. It was a real shock to the skating world because apparently he was so revered for his style and for his easy charm but there could be something in what you say about this head injury and his personality just changed because my dad suffered a head injury um he was Ah. working on the snowy mountain scheme when he first came to australia as a migrant he was down the mines that's where they put all the migrant workers down the mines god there was a thing called a jumbo, which is where you put a ledge into the rock uh, so you can keep chipping away at the rock to build tunnels mm. underground. It fell and my dad suffered a head injury. Oh, God. And mum has a theory, Jen has a theory, that dad was never the same after that. I mean, these are mm. all just anecdotal things. Yeah, head injuries are serious and often the effects of them are not seen until years, possibly decades later. That's really interesting, Michelle. There's so much we could talk about head injuries, absolutely. Like a lot of serial killers, you can trace back to the moment where they suffered a head injury as a child or whatever. But I have something from another eavesdropper this week. If you're an eavesdropper and you write in, you get your name read out, just like Rains Park Mark. (laughs) Hello, Rains Park Mark. We love you, Mark. He's an avid listener. He has voted also for us in the listener's choice. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. And so does Michelle. Oh, and actually, I just want to say on that topic, thank you to everyone on the Facebook pages and, you know, on our personal and on the eavesdrop and Facebook page who have said, done. When we put a link to the the voting, they've all gone, done. We've given Beautiful. you a big love heart. We're so grateful. So thank you so much. Beyond grateful. But meanwhile, going back to Rains Park, Mark, who is an eavesdropper and is a supportive one at that, he sent us a story, Michelle, that he discovered from Vice magazine. Vice is brilliant for all these kind of underground stories that people don't really hear about. It was quite heartbreaking, actually. So brace yourself. It was about a South African town called East London, and it only happened on the 27th of June. So this is only last week in our timeline currently. 22 teenagers were found dead in a club in this South African town. The investigation has been launched, but currently authorities have no idea how the victims, who are aged between 13 and 17, how they died. They were found in a place called the Enyobeni Tavern at 4.30 a.m. And it appears that they were all celebrating at the time, possibly the end of school. There were no visible wounds. The bodies were all laying, laying across the tavern like they had dropped in the middle of conversations or dancing. And there's a few theories that they may have been poisoned, harking back to my comment about poisoning at the top of the show. Uh That's what was on my mind. Other theories were of a stampede to get into the crowded building, but there are no visible signs of injury. There are survivors, and one of them actually spoke to the BBC. She said that she escaped through the window after her friends began to collapse. How odd. I haven't been able to find anything more about it. That's really strange because... I actually was just rifling through the internet. I say rifling like I'm going through like an old school scanning Rolodex or something. Yeah, I was on the internet as you were. Oh my God, what is wrong with me today? On the internet. You're not well. You're not I'm well. not well. I'm not well. Brain's not engaged. But 
there are all these mysterious deaths, cancers and poisonings and things all over the world right now. Yeah, there's a school in America where there are something like 80 students who have this extremely rare form of brain cancer. In the same school? Yep. That's bizarre. Yeah, there is a lot. I'll put some links in in the show notes. But yeah, there's a, there's a real spate of these mysterious illnesses. But obviously, these poor people died. So you've not been able to find yeah. anything more? Nothing more, no. In the coming weeks, there might be some some more information on what happened to these kids. Well, stay tuned. Extra, extra, read all about Give it. Give me the scoop. Eavesdropping wind and there's no doubt about it. Eavesdropping. This week's theme is Mysterious Mysteries, Michelle. If you remember, I said to you, let's do Mysterious Mysteries. I know, and I didn't do it. I'm sorry. I've got something completely different, but you'll love it anyway. (laughs) Sorry about that. Oh, (laughs) so my Mysterious Mysteries, Michelle, were prompted by a program that I found called Missing 411. It's very sad. Yeah, I am. It was about a two-year-old boy called Dior... Kunz Jr., who disappeared on July 10th, 2015, in Salmon Chalice National Park in Idaho on a camping trip with his family in remote, rocky, mountainous terrain. The campsite wasn't more than a clearing by a creek, so it was proper wild camping, and it was in the dead end down a 17-mile unmade track. In this documentary, Michelle, there were so many beautiful places, wild, remote, mountainous, in the middle of America. Mm. It's incredible. It's huge. And it was about people going missing because... There's a lot of people that go missing. In fact, we have spoken in the last weeks just because it's been to do with our stories about people going missing. A lot of the time in America, sometimes elsewhere, like you had South America recently, and it's just horrifying how many people do go missing. So poor old Dior and his parents, Dior Senior and mum Jessica, went on this trip, this camping trip, really remote. And when you say going to a campsite, it's not like what you do here in England where you book in, you go down to Dorset, <laughs> you're chick by jowl in a bell tent with lots of other people, East Dulwich by sea, doggies, families, waking up at the crack of dawn by babies crying. There is no one else here with Dior and his family. It is in the middle of nowhere, like I said, at the end of the track. They're with Jessica's granddad, Bob, and Bob's close friend, Isaac, who is a last minute addition. Now, day one, Dior and his parents went to the store to get some groceries and things. And on their way back, they found Granddad Bob and Isaac had been fishing and they'd caught a few little minnows and things, which fascinated little Dior. The whole family were keen fishermen and they were keen to get started. Dior's parents, Jessica and Dior Sr., asked the older men to show them where they had cast in. So they walked down the creek a little way and had a look at the spot because they were getting loads of fish. Now, Granddad was quite old and he was on oxygen. So he wandered back to the campsite and little Dior decided to go with him. So it was kind of acknowledged between the parents and Granddad Bob that they'd keep an eye on Dior. Off he went. So Granddad went and sat down in his chair, which was between his RV or truck or trailer that he was sleeping in. They were sleeping in their vehicles. Mm -hmm. And he saw Dior playing by a bush, like a gorse bush or something. And then the next thing you know, he vanished in thin air. I mean, obviously, Granddad blinked or looked away or something. But Dior had only been 50 yards away and it had only been 10 minutes. And then he was gone. 
So he called out, the family had joined him, they were all looking everywhere, calling, calling, yelling, yelling, searching everywhere. They couldn't get signal on their phone. Dad drives off a little way to try and get some signal. Meanwhile, mum gets through. Poor old granddad Bob, though, he's quite elderly and does have a few memory issues. So who knows whether or not more time had passed. But I think it was a very short period of time when they did raise the alarm. Isaac, who is his friend, was actually a younger man who had befriended granddad Bob in their neighbourhood. And witnesses say that Isaac never really searched for the boy and he did have previous sex crime misdemeanours on his rap sheet. It was a bit of an odd bod and the parents had never met him before. But suffice to say, because of the remoteness of the place, they would have known if anyone else had been there and abducted Dior and everyone present at the campsite became suspects. This is sounding really creepy already. It's creepy. Mm. It's awful. He's two years old. And do you know what? Shades of Azaria Chamberlain, I keep thinking, remote spot, child goes missing. How the fuck does a baby go missing? Exactly. Mm. So it's usually an animal. And in Azaria's case, it was an animal. But that was after that poor family went through hell and her mother went to prison as well. Yeah. Now, Dior's family equally had to deal with hundreds of Facebook pages about Dior because he's never been found, Michelle. Spoiler, he's never been found. That was in 2015. They've never found a single trace of this little boy. So the family, they're being blamed. They're being called white trash. There's stories accusing them of selling the little boy to pay off their debts, that he never even made it to the campsite, all sorts of things. They employed a private investigator who eventually withdrew from the case because he felt the parents weren't being truthful and didn't. he didn't understand why they wouldn't advertise nationally the $20,000 reward that they had put up. Hmm. Who knows what their reasons were? But suffice to say, Michelle, as you've just touched on with Azaria Chamberlain and Australia is equally a massive country with a lot of unnavigated terrain. Mm. Every year in America, hundreds of people vanish from these remote parks and little Dior's disappearance was eerily similar to another in the Rocky Mountains National Park in August 1958. Oh, you think about all of these national parks. And like you say, uncharted terrain. They're huge. I always say, if there was a way to figure out how many bodies are buried out in the desert in Australia, there's got to be loads because it's an easy way to like abduct and hide bodies because no one's ever going to find those bodies. No. And do you remember in the Stranger Things episode, I talked about hundreds of thousands of people go missing every year in America. They're not all in remote places, but people just go missing. It's terrifying. And there's never any trace of them to be found. Bobby Bizup in 1958, he was aged 10. He went missing while at a camp for boys in a place called St. Marlowe in the Rocky Mountains. Bobby was partially deaf and he was fishing when a camp counsellor came to tell him it was dinner time. So Bobby gathered up his things and followed the camp counsellor as he walked away. But after a few yards, the counsellor turned around to look and Bobby was gone only after a few yards. So, of course, there was a search which was immediately set off, which included bloodhounds, 400 volunteers. It completely confounded the authorities as to how he could have vanished so quickly. Yes, he was partially deaf, so he may not have heard people calling for him. But after nine days and no sign of any of Bobby's belongings or remains, they stopped the search. Three of the camp counsellors who searched for Bobby that year returned the next year. And while searching 2,000 feet above a mountain that was above called Mount Beaker, which had been searched with a fine tooth comb the year Bobby went missing, 
They found his remains <gasps> in a ravine. What? Again, that ravine had already been thoroughly searched. So what the fuck? He was snatched and taken. Whether it was by a human or an animal, he was snatched and... Or? Aliens! Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? It did cross my mind. I didn't want to say it. I knew it was. Because I thought, oh God, it's, it's my go-to for everything. Well... This documentary was leaning heavily. No. It was trying to piece together all these disappearances. And it was saying that a lot of the children who went missing in particular were either very young or Bobby was partially deaf or another boy that was had autism or learning difficulties. But that also could go a ways to explaining how they wouldn't hear people calling for them or other things. I think what the documentary filmmaker wanted to say was that it was Bigfoot, to be honest with you. (laughs) It could be Bigfoot. Who knows? Yeah. But there have been enough reports of something out there by so many people that we can't discount that aliens could exist. They are, you know, generally benign towards us. So this is quite aggressive. So why are they taking kids and then dropping them off a year later? And then just like dumping them on the top of a mountain in a ravine so their remains can be found. I mean, why bother doing that? Just never put the remains back anywhere. But anyway, during the search for Dior, for example, his grandmother detailed how they really did look so, so hard. They were told to take five steps. These are hundreds of people. Take five steps. Look up, look down, look around. Take five steps. Look up, look down, look around. That's how they they were searching. The creek nearby was searched by people on their hands and knees mm. until it got too deep, clearly. And they checked inside eagles' nests as well because yeah. a little boy, he's only small, he could have been taken by a wild animal or a bird, which is probably the likeliest reason, I would say. Mm. But the family feel that there, there should have been a boot or an item of clothing that would have come loose and been found, like his shoes weren't really on very tight and things like that. Snatched. Could be, but they were in the middle of nowhere. That road was 17 miles long to get there. They would have heard another car arrive. That's what they're saying. Uh, yeah, it's a, a mysterious mystery. Mysterious mysteries. On the 2nd of October in 1999, three-year-old Jared Atadero disappeared in the Comanche Peak Wilderness. Now, Jared lived there with his dad, who was a shopkeeper called Alan, and his sister Jocelyn, who was six, at a resort. They were the shopkeepers of this resort. It's astonishingly beautiful, Michelle. Absolutely gorgeous. Ten acres of wilderness-style camping. And on the day of his disappearance, a Christian singles group who was staying at the lodge and working for Alan in return for lodging decided to visit a trout farm and Jocelyn wanted to go with them. So, of course, well, she was allowed to go. But then, of course, little Jared also wanted to go. Now, Dad's a single working father and he trusted the group and he knew them in, well enough to allow his children to join the trek, guaranteeing that somebody would always keep an eye on the children. So this group drove 15 miles up the road and the trail was kind of moderate and little Jared still needed to be watched by a, an adult, which he was. But the group spread out and separated. And the one woman that was responsible for the children was kind of ahead of the rest of the group. Then she lost sight of little Jared for about 20 minutes. So she raced up the mountain looking for him. 20 minutes is a long time, lady. You should have been looking harder. Yeah. Sorry, I'm judging. I'm judging. <laughs> I, I shouldn't be. But apparently during this time, Jared had come across some fishermen who he did actually speak to. But that was it. Then he was gone. 
and no one saw hide nor hair of him since. The group members return to tell Alan what happened to Jared. So he jumps in his car and he races up there. He's looking, he's screaming, he's calling for his boy. 65 search and rescue volunteers worked for a seriously long time searching for Jared day and night with no sign of the boy or his belongings at all until three and a half years later, Michelle, Mm -hmm. these walkers or hikers, if you'd like to call them, Rob Osborne and Gareth Watts, who were hiking the Big South Trail in June 2003, they arrived at the Rocky Mountains and walked up 2,000 feet where they spotted a pristine shoe. So well kept that they thought it must belong to somebody who was nearby. Mm -hmm. They realised that the little boy had gone missing before and they also thought it was way too high for a three-year-old to climb and it was extremely rough terrain. But eventually they did happen upon Jared's clothing, the cap of his skull and one tooth sitting on top of a log. What? So that was his remains and that's all that remained of Jared, sadly. Do you remember when we were talking about the girls in Panama who went missing? Yeah. The backpack had been found pristine. It had been supposedly, should have been out in torrential rains. Same Mm. with this shoe. How is it pristine after three and a half years being in the outdoors? Mm. Something strange. And placed on a log? Very odd. Now, I want to go back to these fishermen. Were they ever investigated? Were they ever found? That's all I've got. They would have been investigated. They would have been spoken to about it. But during the initial search for Jared, the sniffer dogs had actually alerted to the top of the hill. (gasps) So it would have been searched, despite it being so much higher than a little boy could have reached and mountainous and rocky. So what do you think it is? Is it an animal encounter? Is it a caring Bigfoot who then takes them in and looks after them for three and a half years and then they die accidentally and then, I don't know, I don't know. It's just so weird. There was no animal DNA left on Jared's clothing. There was no blood. The jacket and shoes were in good condition considering they'd been out there for three and a half years. There was no scuffs on his trainers to indicate that he'd been dragged by an animal. Mm. And his trousers were found inside out. Oh. So that's not the work of a mountain lion. No, that's the work of a human. That's, yeah, that's not nice, is it? But there was no DNA. Well, obviously they didn't find a body, but the clothing was fine. Aliens. I mean, it's... <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's aliens. It's always aliens. But what happened to our nice aliens, you know? Well, maybe they're out there taking bits and bobs. I Do you know what? Know. Just like yeah. humans... Maybe there are evil aliens. Maybe. Not nice. But let's look beyond the aliens for a moment there, Michelle, because since all this has happened, there's been a campaign for a database to be set up to record how many people go missing. And you said earlier how many. There's hundreds of thousands mm. that, who go missing from wilderness areas and national parks and what was involved in the searches, the success rate, so it can all be assessed for future cases. But when the documentary makers requested a list of the missing people from all these parks and wildernesses in the US and Canada... They were told that such a list would cost 1.4 million. Do you know what? Fucking spend it because they spend more than that on dumb shit. So, yes. I actually really feel like there needs to be a map. And what I mean by that is like a database map, and everyone can have it in the United States. And this map plots out where all of these disappearances have happened. Across the entire country. So at a glance, you can see, okay, since, you know, in the last 50 years, there have been 
87 disappearances in this area. And then you can see if there are any links, patterns, but it's got to be done. And really, 1.4 million? That's child's play. That's nothing. No, but really, take that off the defence budget, they wouldn't even notice. Yeah, you're right. I scrolled through the National Park Service Investigative Services And it makes for troubling reading, Michelle. You've got the number one at the top of this huge list was a Jane Doe who turned out to be one of serial killer Henry Lee Lucas's victims, right down to men in their 70s who went on hikes never to return with only their backpacks as any evidence being found years later. And of course, all those children that were in the documentary Mm. were were catalogued in there as well. Thousands. Absolutely thousands. And it's hard to believe in this day of CCTV and drones that people can just vanish without trace. Yosemite seems to be a particular black hole where there's tons of people going missing there. Well, I told you about Charlie Haub, who went missing right here in Zermatt. There was the CCTV footage of him with his backpack going through the turnstiles out into the mountains because he'd taken the gondola up to the top of Klein Mountain and never seen again. This guy was the heir to a billion fortune in Germany. So That's clearly fishy. It's fishy. When we did talk about some theories there involving Russia, like you say, in this day and age, how do people just go missing? I've got this final comment from a Redditor, a Reddit user mm-hmm. called Hector Abaya. And that person wrote about how the wilderness can affect your senses. And they said, quite often people are calling. They should be within shouting distance because of the time that's elapsed. But for some reason, they're not hearing anything. And this person believes that sound in the wilderness is weird. They go on to say, I've spent a ton of time hiding from searches as a training subject in the wilderness, I think they're saying. And even I'm still sometimes surprised at how variable sound can be. I've had searchers shouting for me from maybe 50 feet away who I couldn't hear because of a slight ridge and wind blowing away from me. On the other hand, I've been freaked out by hearing a dog panting and human voices just above me when I knew the team weren't close to me yet because I was hiding on the edge of a canyon and there was a weird magnifying echo effect. Usually the trend is for sound to be dampened though. Even a bit of vegetation, a small hill and a slight breeze you barely notice are enough to muffle sound to a surprising degree. So it could just be very much like picnic at Hanging Rock. The elements are working against you. I would agree with that because I have hiked a lot here in the in the Swiss Alps, it can freak you out about sound and where it's coming from. And you think something is really close. It's not at all. And other things you can't sort of hear. And it really depends on where you are. And especially with the glacier here, you know, the the sound does very strange things on snow, on ice, on rock. So I think there is something in what that guy's saying for sure. Yeah. So that's my mysterious mysteries for you there. Like you said before, what's the upshot to all of this? Animals, aliens, devious humans. No one knows and that's why there needs to be a database. Yeah, or like I said, uh, like a kind of a disappearance map. So all of these disappearances are joined up. Don't go to Yosemite. Don't go to the Rocky Mountains. Don't take your children on hikes or if you do that you can't do that can you that's just living 
through fear. You, you mustn't do that. But if you do, you could do what I think Jen had in the in the eighties or seventies. A leash. A leash. Yes. <laughs> we were all on leashes. It's like back a dog then, leash for kids. How is your mum with four <laughs> kids meant to keep an eye on all of you? Well, you just pop a leash on. Honestly, they're going to have a resurgence. It's going to make a comeback. <laughs> I can just see Jen walking down Canberra High Street with four kids, like a team of huskies, pulling her down the street. Yep. She just needed a sledge. That's all. <laughs> then we'd be off. <laughs> you got the vibes. You got the vibes. Now, I think I must have missed the memo from you, Geordie, on yep. mysterious mysteries because mm-hmm. I thought it was sort of mysterious deaths or something. Yeah, well, mysterious, mysterious, anything mysterious, I suppose. Well, the thing is that it started off that I was, you know, searching for mysterious deaths and this thing did come up, which then just turned into something completely different. So, yeah, apologies in advance for that because I did come across a guy called Warren Jeffs. Honestly, I don't know how we've not come across this guy before because it is culty, it is creepy and it's you know, right up our street. But I'm just going to talk a little bit about it because I think probably maybe you have come across this guy and maybe... I have. I've been told by a couple of eavesdroppers, Yannicka being one of them, because there's a documentary out at the moment, Keep Sweet and Pray or Obey. Pray and Obey, yeah. So that's where, where it led me to. Did you watch it? No, I didn't because I didn't know about the documentary. I found him completely through mysterious deaths because there's a woman I'll get to why it's come up under like mysterious death searches but I'll just circle back to a little bit about why Warren Jeffs is all over the press at the moment so in Utah since 1929 there's been a radical Mormon cult called the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints it's too much of a mouthful to say, so I'm just going to abbreviate it to FLDS. Look, it seems like it was just an extreme offshoot of the Church of Latter-day Saints, which is yeah. basically your bog-standard Mormon kind of sect. Polygamy. Yes, but yeah, FLDS did believe in polygamy and some other crazy left-field stuff. So in 2002, when the church's spiritual leader, who was called Roland Jeffs, died at the age of 92, his son Warren Jeffs took over the congregation. And the spiritual leader of the FLDS church is considered a prophet of God and is the only person able to perform marriages within the group. And he can also punish followers by reassigning their wives, their children and property to other people. Christ. So it's That's like awful. if you get on the wrong side of this guy, he's like, right, I'm taking your wife, your kids and everything you own. I'm going to give it to some other yep. dude. Wow. It's a lot of power. And Warren essentially became the group's prophet of God. Well, he's the son of Ray. Of Rulon. Rulon Jones. Yeah. He's the son because Rulon died, son took over. And when he did, that's when things began to get weirder than usual. So what led me to Warren Jeffs is I read an article where Warren's 65th wife 
Gabriel Decker, Look. her name is. And apparently Gosh. he had 87 wives. Oh, man. So she's come out in the past few months to say that there were so many mysterious deaths and suicides within the congregation after Warren took over that it seemed like she was going to a funeral every week. So what the hell was going on? Oh, my you goodness. Know? And I read that Rulon and Warren were both into this controversial kind of Mormon doctrine called blood atonement. I don't like it. No, of course you don't like it. It's horrible. And that's <sighs> where they believe that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ did not cleanse people of all of their sins. So anyone who sins beyond the cleansing power of Jesus Christ, and this included crimes like murder, but also things like adultery, or I think even talking to a man in a way that was suggestive, who, if you were married, was, you know, considered like on the way to adultery. Well, mm. they had to atone for their sins by having their blood spilled. So, Brielle, she fled this cult slash church in 2013 after years of abuse. And she said in reports that there were so many deaths and they were all told that they were accidents every time. So, you never really knew what was an accident and what wasn't. And she said that she thinks some of the deaths were staged to look like accidents. And she relates this all back to this blood atonement. Hmm. So there's not a lot on the internet about whether or not these mysterious deaths were accidents or if it was the church basically just killing their own and making yeah. it look like accidents because this church has come under fire particularly Warren Jeffs for all sorts of other horrible things but I just want to talk a little bit about Brill because we've already said that it was polygamy she says she was just 18 when she was forced to marry Warren Jeffs and yeah I have to say after looking into this cult, 18 is kind of old because this guy and trigger warning, and this is not going to come as any surprise to anyone who... He liked them young, I'm sure. He did like them young. So she was 18 at the time. He was 50. And in all the newspaper reports, look, they show this picture and it's this really creepy photo of not all 87 wives, just some of the wives. And they're all in these identical dresses, but they're all in different coloured pastel colours, right? Mm, like an ice cream shop. Do you remember in the 80s, you know, all pastel colours were all the rage. You know, you would have your... Yes. It was beautiful, but yeah, it's like gelato colours. And she's in there looking young and gorgeous, but they all have these creepy, weird, like high neck dresses on. And obviously, Warren Jeffs was in the middle, like with his harem of women. And yuck, it's not nice. You just look at that and you just know something weird's going on here. And she says she was groomed basically her whole life to marry Warren. And that when she was 18, she had this secret arranged marriage, which took place in a secret location because Warren Jeffs was on the run from the police. And what for polygamy? Well, 
I knew you were going to ask. So big trigger warning here. Oh, God. Sexual abuse, right? What a monster. Really. And sexual abuse against children. Yeah. So, and he'd been doing it for years. And what a nasty piece of work. But look, spoiler alert, he is currently in prison for sexual abuse charges. I want to park that horrific part of the cult and go back to Brielle. She said she was terrified of marrying him because she says the church was set up like a pyramid with him at the top. And he'd set up his family in the same way with his favourite wives near the top. Mm -hmm. And look, I'll just remind you here again, this church slash cult was in Utah. Started in Utah. And you know what else started in Utah? The home of MLNs. MLNs. The home of MLMs. Exactly. Exactly. So we've got pyramid schemes. Multi-level marketing. Exactly. Ponzi schemes. Yep. Doterra. Pyramid schemes. Doterra. LuLaRoe. Arbon. All of those. They've all started in Utah. They did. And if you want to know more about MLMs, you can listen to our episode from season two, episode 46. And I will put... Someone's done their research. I have because I was just thinking, my God, everything we talk about on this podcast, it's all in this bloody story, you know, because there's shades of Keith Ranieri right here as well, you know. Yes, absolutely. It smacks of him, yeah. You know, sex cult, which I know we don't want to go into that because it's too creepy with this whole FLDS. But, you know, sex cult, Keith Ranieri, MLMs, you know, like we had talked about, doTERRA, everything just sort of feeds into this stuff. Utah, which has... So much beautiful wilderness. I'm sure kids are, mm. are going missing there as well if you had your wilderness map. So right. back to Keith Ranieri, we did do uh, an episode on the Nixium cult and the whole shebang in season two, episode eight. And again, I'll put some links in the show notes. Back to Brielle. She says that at the FLDS church cult, women were taught to be obedient and subservient to their husbands. And they were forced to wear these heavy pastel dresses that I talked about, buttoned up to the Mm. neck. And they were also taught to obey their husband's whims. Right. Keep sweet, obey and pray. Yep. And actually, when I read that, it just did make me think of The Handmaid's Tale, where they were all made to wear matching dresses and all the women were taught to obey the men. So, Handmaid's Tale, work of fiction, but is it? Because it's happening, yeah. you know, it's yeah. it's so creepy. So anyway, you can't talk about this cult without getting a little bit creepy because she also said that underage girls were forced into marriages with much yeah. older men in the congregation and that they were having kids before they were even legally considered adults themselves. Oh, so, man. you know, she says when she was 13, she watched her older sister, Colleen, marry the then cult leader, Warren's dad, Roland Jeffs, who was in Yuck. his late 80s. It's just oh, man. it's just so fucked up. And all because it was part of the church kind of gospel that the more wives and children a man has, the closer he is to God. And therefore, the greater his chances of salvation after death. And honestly, this dude, Warren Jeffs, is going to need a lot of salvation because yep. he was not... A good guy. And look, I don't want to get too dark, but trigger warning because, like you had said earlier, he did 
like them young. And apparently he was the headmaster of this FLDS kind of school called the Alter Academy mm. because real and hundreds, like basically all the other FLDS kids, they were forced to go to this school. They weren't allowed to go to normal school where they right. had to learn all about the church's teachings. And he was headmaster before he was the leader of of FLDS. He was headmaster of this school. Right, okay. And he was accused of doing all sorts of nasty things to the kids and sexual things, also to his own kids. So it's just not nice. And and he would say that it was God's will, right? And this is part of what he was on the run from the police. If you remember, we, we said he was on the run from the police when Brielle got married to him. Part of it was there was a lawsuit against him, brought against him by his nephew for not very nice things. And uh, if you actually want to know more about that, this guy, his name's Brent, he wrote a book about it called Lost Boy, where he goes into all the details of what happened to him from Warren and other family members. Unbelievably... All of this child sexual abuse allegations, they were not actually what Warren Jeffs was wanted primarily by the police for when he married Brielle. Turns out Warren was never charged for those those incidents when he was a headmaster. But they closed ranks. Well, turns out that these horrific acts only came to light because they formed part of a court testimony against him in 2011 at his trial Mm -hmm. because he was on the run after being accused of arranging the marriage of a 14-year-old girl called Alyssa Wall to an older guy and that it was – there's a word for it, but it's basically like he was arranging what was in effect – the rape of this girl because she Grooming. was underage oh. pretty much. And look, you know, that's why he was on the run because that was the charge that was levelled against him. When he was busted by the police, it was because when he was on the run, he was driving a car with fake plates. And, you know, it turns out he was wearing disguises. He had fake identity documents. So he knew he was on borrowed time. This whole thing just gets more and more bizarre because – They knew they had a lot on this guy, but they couldn't pin anything on him because he was on the run. There were wanted posters put up all over Utah, 10 grand for info that led to his arrest and conviction. And that was in 2005. Then in April 2006, an arrest warrant was issued in Utah for Warren uh, for felony charges. It's called accomplice rape. So this is where basically he's set up the marriages for these girls. Do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah. So that's what he was on, even though there had been so much against him for the horrible things he'd done. He was up for this accomplice right. rape charge. And then in May that same year, 2006, the FBI put him on the most wanted fugitives list. He was actually in the top 10 and there was a $60,000 reward, but he still managed to evade police. And then during this time, somehow he did manage to go to Colorado City to marry two more 
child brides. One of them was Briel. So then in August in 2000. So it was a double marriage. Yeah, because he's a polygamist. He's marrying as many as he can because he needs this salvation. And then in August 2006, his car was pulled over, like I said, fake plates. And, you know, they found computers and mobile phones and wigs and sunglasses oh, and loads God. of cash. What's he up to? Well, he's trying to disguise himself. And oh, I see. For himself. Mm. Right. Yes, of course, he didn't think of that. Yeah, yeah. And he was thrown in jail and basically he was charged in Arizona on eight counts. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Including, and this is trigger warning, sexual misconduct with a minor and incest. So just gross. So his trial began in September 2007 in Utah. And after three weeks, he was found guilty on two counts of being an accomplice to rape. And he was sentenced to prison for 10 years to life. And he started um, his sentence. I think he actually did three years of it. But then in 2010, the Utah Supreme Court overturned the conviction. And they said, listen, you know, the jury was dodgy and they ordered a new trial. However, Hmm. that never happened because he then was tried in Arizona on like, like more serious charges. Okay, good. Then on August 9 in 2011, he was convicted in Texas on two counts of sexual assault of a child and sentenced to life in prison. Where, you know, that's where he is now and he'll be eligible for parole in July 2038. So, you know, he'll be an old man then and they probably won't let him out, I imagine. And look, as we've hinted at, there is so much more we could go into detail about this case because it's really fucked up. So I'm going to, again, circle back to Brielle because she says that at 18, their marriage was never consummated because she thinks... He thank God. Yes, thank God. But she said she was too old for him. He just needed more wives ah. to like boost his. He was just stacking them up, stacking them up, and that you know she was made to do other things though, which were quite gross, and that she witnessed a lot of coercive control that he had over the other wives, and there was this thing called the law of Sarah, where. He created this law where the wives had to, like, have sex with each other while he watched because he wanted the wives to become closer. It's so fucked up. That was when Brielle knew she had to get out. But it was really hard for her to get out of this cult because every move was being watched. And she says she thinks he knew she was trying to get out because at the age of 23, he sent, she says cult doctors to drug her and these are her words she said I didn't have an interview with a real doctor just some nurses that showed up and gave me the medicine and told me to take it and they watched her take it so she had no choice she had to have it and she later found out that the drug she was given was called Seroquel which is a prescription medication used to treat schizophrenia which she was told would just help her sleep and calm down her anxiety. She didn't have anxiety. But she said initially the dose was fine. But then she said that FLDS doctors kept upping her dose and upping her dose. And there were days where she thought she would die. She also says... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. So awful. And then she says that since she did get out, 
other um, ex-FLDS members who also managed to get away from the cult told her that while she was in the cult, Warren had put a hit on her to kill her, which sounds weird because she's the one that's come forward to say about all these accidents, right? So if what she says is true, maybe they didn't need to put a hit on her. But she does say that the FLDS doctrine is such that they believe you can't shed innocent blood. So they need to have a reason to kill you. Right. And those reasons are things like dating someone if you're married and, you know, Mm -hmm. or uh, talking to somebody, adultery, all those things we talked about uh, earlier. But apparently she says she did none of those things. So they just didn't have a reason to kill her. But maybe these hits were not just on her. They were what what was happening to all of these mysterious deaths inside the cult. Yes, I wondered if that was the case. Yeah. Mm. He's stacking them up and then he's getting rid of them. Yep. Because he can't control them all. No, and she tried quite a few times to escape, but they would always catch her. And in 2013, she was actually sent to live with an older brother. And I'm sure there were a lot of related kids because of Mm. the polygamy. But anyway, when she was sent to this older brother, he locked her in a bedroom and wouldn't let her out for two weeks. And when he did let her out, she managed to find scissors and hide them in her weird pastel dress. And (laughs) she managed to unscrew the window frame in the room where she was locked. And she got out and she ran, ran and ran and ran. And finally, she managed to... um, get into a safe house uh, where she was eventually relocated to Tennessee where she changed her name. And this is weird. She was legally adopted by another woman. And I don't really know why, but I guess maybe so they couldn't trace her. But then in 2017, Briel returned to the FLDS compound in Utah, which was called the Dream Center. And that's where she actually had lived with Warren. And that was seized uh, by authorities after his arrest in 2006. And amazingly, she has turned this dream center, which was, you know, the home of so much dodgy, uh, horrible things. She's turned it into a refuge for other women who are oh, fleeing wow. cults. So it's kind of amazing. And I hope they gave it a good cleanse beforehand with their Um, chakra cleansers. Oh, man, I just think a bit of Dettol and a lot of water and some scrubbing too because it just sounds horrific (laughs) what went on there. Um, But she's also found love. She's she's got a new husband. And I tried to find any information about her claims that that he was murdering people and staging them of accidents, but Mm. there's nothing. So if that was true, we'll never know. It's covered up. So there it is. Mysterious deaths led me to horrific cult. That's Sorry. horrific. Well, like I said, I had been told about this Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey documentary, which is currently on Netflix. I can tell you right now, Michelle, I won't be watching it. No, it, I don't want to watch it. It sounds awful and I don't want my mind to be sullied in that way. I know that it's, you know, you can't pretend these things don't exist. I know they exist. I know I hear these things on the news all the time. I just don't want to confront it right now. I don't want to see that guy. No, and that's the thing that this cult, there is a lot of grim, horrible things that happen to innocent yeah. children. And that's and that's I didn't really want to thing. touch too much on that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's grim. So I would say watch that documentary with care. at your own risk. Yes. <laughs> with care. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I just have to say sorry because it wasn't a nice jaunty. You should apologise for the crimes of Warren Jeffs. No, God. No, I I mean, that guy, he's not getting salvation. I don't care how many wives he married. He's not getting any salvation. That guy's not not a good person. So dark and depraved. I just don't get it. But, you know, this is the world we live in, Michelle, sadly. Along with aliens taking children and aliens kidnapping and coming down what happened to the aliens that come along and help us who are decommissioning nuclear warheads and whatnot and we need you know, more stopping of them. All these all things from happening which we heard about in an episode yeah come back we guys need, we need you we need more of those so if you listen aliens if you're eavesdropping right now come and help us we need you and also just do some <laughs> things with the climate change we need some help so and fix russia Fix Russia and Ukraine as well. turn it down a notch. (laughs) Fix it for us and we promise we'll be good from now on. And in the meantime, you know what you've got to do, eavesdroppers. That is, whatever you do, wherever you are, just just keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.